Welcome to the No Normal. New Music Edmonton presents The No Normal, a podcast series featuring the words and works of creative sonic artists from central Alberta and beyond. In a moment, NME's artistic director Ian Crutchley will introduce the subjects of this installment of The No Normal. But first, New Music Edmonton respectfully acknowledges that this celebration of creativity was produced on Treaty 6 territory. Amiskwichiwiskaigan is the traditional gathering place of the many indigenous peoples whose histories, languages, and cultures continue to influence and enrich our community. We further acknowledge that it was the indigenous peoples of Treaty 6 who established the principles for, and have remained exemplars of, the respectful and caring use of this land for the purposes of art, livelihood, and spirituality. It is from these principles that New Music Edmonton has sought and will continue to seek partnerships, inspiration, and learning. For more information about NME's programming and events, look us up on social media or visit our website, newmusicedmonton.ca. And now, here is Ian Crutchley. Today's guest is an artist familiar to many people in many places, composer and violinist Alyssa Chung. Her compositions have been performed often in Edmonton, and for several years she was a key part of the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra's violin section. More recently, Alyssa moved to Montreal and took up a position with the mighty Cateau Bazzini, and since then has continued to build her career as a composer while also taking part in the quartet's almost constant schedule of performing, recording, and working with emerging artists. It's always fantastic to chat with Alyssa, and we hope you enjoy sitting with us while we do so in a wide-ranging conversation recorded in early spring 2023. So welcome, Alyssa. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, it's really great to have a chance to talk to you about your work as a composer and uh, also a little bit about your work as a performer, which is sort of an interesting dual function that you have as an artist. And uh, you are probably, if not the only person I know, you're certainly one of the few people I know in Canada anyway that is composing a lot and also performing pretty much weekly including tours of different countries in the world and so on. So you're you're extremely busy, and I think it's safe to say that you are basically steeped in new music, whether you're composing or performing. It's pretty much what you do. Yeah, pretty much. It's uh, more or less... Quota Bozzini is basically 80% of what I do, and then composing maybe another 10%, and then teaching is another 10%. Yeah, teaching. So where are you teaching at the moment? I teach privately, and I also have this year two students at Concordia University. Let's talk a little bit about you as an artist individually. I don't, I don't want to focus entirely on the quartet at all or anything like that. But um, uh, I was reading over your bio, and the first phrase in it is, uh, I'm not sure it's a quote from you or if it's just something that you found somewhere, but it says, classical music without pretense. It's a quote from Christopher Martin, who is a CBC producer. I had been invited, well, this was over 10 years ago, when CBC used to have these lunchtime previews for concerts or shows that would be coming up. So I got invited by Chris to do a little bit of solo violin, and I incorporated some contemporary music in that. And so that was one of my first times just really showcasing and showing people what classical music could be, especially the new music. I don't know what he meant by the phrase, but my own posture for 
why I put it in my biography is because I want to remove the expectation that you need to know anything about classical music to enjoy it, to remove this idea of elitism, of tradition, of having to have knowledge before you can appreciate a piece of music, especially with contemporary music. Sometimes it can feel foreign. I want to open it up to people who may not be familiar to come and explore and discover. And it has nothing to do with how much you have listened before. It's really about having an open mind and receiving what might be presented to you. It could be positive or negative feelings that we're all open to all these kinds of reactions just because you didn't like a piece of music or because maybe it shocked you or maybe it sent you away with joy. And I think that's what music does. And, and you don't really need previous knowledge to be able to feel music in any fashion. There still lingers that idea that it has to be explained. And let's be honest, a lot of us as composers, sometimes performers, not great at explaining classical music to people who haven't really experienced it before. So I'm not sure sometimes we may do a disservice by explaining it. I'm curious, actually, because you do perform new music in lots of different places in the world, and I'm wondering if there's a difference in audiences when you do present new music to people. Do you often encounter people that aren't familiar with new music? I think that's what's so refreshing about it, is that we're not just playing to one kind of audience. In certain contexts, such as a new music festival, it's a little bit more expected that people who are fans of that festival are accustomed to hearing a lot of new music and accustomed to just being blown away by lots of different pieces for three days straight. And uh, that's one, one context where we play. Um, other contexts of where we play are perhaps geographical regions that don't have as much contemporary music or in more classical traditional settings where there's less contemporary music. So uh, we often in those places also have a talkback or a question and answer period at the end. So we invite people to share their experiences, share their reactions, or even ask questions to us or the composer about the music they heard. It also actually makes me want to go back just a little bit further with you and ask you about how contemporary music took over your life, I guess, if that's one way of putting it. I don't think very many of us entered into our early studies of music thinking about tone clusters and Xenakis and, you know, all of this kind of stuff that ends up being our everyday language. So could you sort of give us a sense of how you came to it first as a composer and as a performer, or if those two things were really separate for you for a long time? I would say it was separate for me for a long time. Actually, there was a similar question yesterday. We were working with another research group that was asking us similar questions, and they asked, what is your first contemporary music experience that you remember? And I kind of had two anecdotes. My first one was I had attended a concert that my sister who was playing violin at the time, was playing Violet Archer at Con Hall at the U of A. And I honestly don't remember the music. <laughs> I think I just remembered being shocked. I was only probably 10 or 11 years old at the time. And my, my sister isn't a professional violinist. She wanted to explore playing living composers. And so she got to work with Violet Archer directly. So in a way, 
that was probably my first experience with contemporary music and living composers, but I wasn't personally involved. So in youth orchestra, Mr. Massey had us play some John Estacio and some Malcolm Forsyth. And I think for me, what was so great was that there were actually living people, living humans that were writing this music and they were living in the city that I was living in. So it wasn't Bach from 300, 400 years ago. It was someone who was living and active and present and being influenced by a similar environment that I was. Somebody you can go and knock on their door. Yeah, and afterwards I did play a, another piece by John uh, Shades of Romance, and I needed to go to his house in order to get the sheet music to photocopy it. And, you know, that, that was, that's just great. So you can ask for feedback and, um, and just their music also is very vibrant and colorful and very attractive as music. And so those were some of my early experiences. And I mostly played traditional classical music until my university days. And when I was studying at McGill, my professor, Tom Williams, really encourages his students to choose a Canadian piece for their final recital. He put out all sorts of suggestions, and I just personally went to the Canadian Music Centre. I was like, I'm going to check this out. Montreal has a huge centre. I should just go and see what's there. And so that also opened a new world of networking and composers who live in Quebec that in Alberta you don't get exposed to very much. As a performer and composer during my master's years at Yale, one of my roommates was a composer. And so just very real person who is writing music and I was almost privy to some of his process because if he was writing a piece, he'd be working at it and be thinking about it, working it out. He used to be working out his piece in steel pen or listening to the mock-up on the MIDI. And so that was very real for me. And I also made many composer friends at that school. So through that, it just became very tangible and seeing all the possibilities of what writing music could be. He and a few others encouraged me to write my own music because there were just things that I couldn't find at the CMC or on the internet or amongst my friends, just certain sounds or fascinations that I wanted to explore. Can you still recall the first piece that you finished composing or even the first one you started maybe even because you might not have finished it? The first real piece that I wrote was actually for this composer roommate. We were three roommates together, so there are two violinists and this composer who played steel pen. So I wrote a trio for two violins and steel pen. He used to have sort of this on and off gig at a Japanese restaurant in New Haven. And so one of the times that he had that concert, then we premiered this piece. So is that piece still around somewhere? Unfortunately, I can't even find it. So even if I wanted to play again, <laughs> it really exists in my mind and my and, and our collective memory because somehow I think as I was storing my finale files or something, it, it disappeared or changing computers. I'm not sure. Yeah. Maybe it'll show up. I don't know if you if you're yet at the stage of having of looking back at early pieces because you've been composing for how long now? Then would you say 15 years? Almost. Like, that piece dated from 2011. In, in a way, like, looking back at things that you did when 
you know, when you're first starting, it's always interesting because it's like, how did I think of that? It is. And when I came back to Edmonton to play with the symphony, I said, well, I really need help to learn how to write music. That was in 2013. And so Piotr Grinamojeko was actually quite kind to just take me under his wing and show me different composers and give me different tools of how to write and work out a piece of music. So some of my early works have been really influenced by how he taught me and what I was listening to at that time that he had me listening to. Working with a composition teacher is always really different for everybody. And when you've worked with composition teachers, you know, how have you most enjoyed that relationship? Piotr was very instrumental to me to expose me to some of the Eurocentric type of composers. So, you know, the Italian school, Donatoni, Chelsea, Sharino, growing up in Alberta, you don't really know about these works. And Zanakis, he's a huge Zanakis fan too. And even just the basic skill of engraving and making your scores clear for the performers. That was very important to him. And he very much passed this down to me and taught me how to just work around the software to make your scores very legible. And, and really musically, he would give me challenges. He said, well, you're a violinist, so you can perform your own pieces. So my first work was a three movement piece called Still Meanders. Some of the exercises he gave me were give me a set of maybe five or six notes and I had to compose the whole piece based on those notes. So that gave it kind of a consistency because it was all in that mode. Or for example, use only the high register or challenge yourself to make a piece all of double stops or things like that. So limitations basically. Mm -hmm. I think composers thrive really well with those. It's I don't know if you agree. I think it's hardest when you really don't have any limitations on what you're going to do. And I think that's why some people really struggle. For sure. And I remember there was this one time I had such a writer's block. He wanted me to write a flute piece for his colleague. And I just was so stuck. And, you know, weeks went by and I had nothing to show him. And so I remember he just forced me to sit at his desk and I had manuscript paper and he just said, write something. I was like, I don't know what I want to write. So he's like, just do it. And so I just put a bunch of random dots on a page <laughs> and uh, it actually became parts of what that flute piece was going to be because I took the random dots and then made other modules that had the same shape, the same contour of those dots. And then those became my cells. And I put all those cells in a hat and then you pick them out and you know some composers like to have processes where they don't have to choose as much anymore just like cage and in that way you don't feel the responsibility of that choice anymore you know are you a habitual composer in other words do you sort of write every day or most days or work on compositions all the time or is it really just a matter of when the opportunity arises, you write a piece and otherwise you kind of are just letting your brain rest? I'm always working on a piece. I've been lucky to have people ask me, especially in the last five years or so, for me to write them pieces. So for the last five years, I've written maybe two pieces a year, which is not a huge output. I don't have any more time to put towards writing, but I usually don't write without an outcome 
but I'm always thinking about a piece, if, if that's what you mean by habitual composer, I'm always thinking about it. Um, I'm not always at the desk writing notes because uh, I'm performing and teaching so much, but there's always a, a piece that's just percolating in my mind. What am I going to do thinking about it? And I also enjoy having a lot of space to work on a piece. I'm not a particularly fast composer. If the ideas come, they do, but if they don't, I rather let them just sit there and, and percolate instead of trying to force something to come for a deadline. Are you ever able to sort of set aside a substantial amount of time in your year to do some work on your compositions? Uh, during Christmas and summer vacations? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> those are the those are the times where I can be like, okay, I can spend three hours to six hours today to to do that. Mm -hmm. So as I, I said at the outset that your position is kind of an unusual and maybe even unique in Canada, that you compose lots, you're also performing new music all the time. I guess as a composer over the years, because you were a composer before you started working with the Bozzini Quartet, I'm wondering if you had any thoughts about how working with a quartet has changed you as a composer. How do these things sort of interact, or are they just really two separate kind of aspects of your creative being? I wouldn't say they're two separate aspects of my creative being, but working with the quartet has really opened up my sonic and music making world a lot more than than what I'd known through school or through my experiences with the symphony. The unique thing about working with the quartet, we were also talking about this yesterday, is how much we like to challenge ourselves artistically, not just technically, but where is new music going? How are we the agents of what is aesthetically what we think is good new music? Or what is a worthwhile project to us? What will get us out of our comfort zone? What are we willing to try? What are other people wanting to experiment with us? So this kind of openness and discovery, I already had that sense. And now it's with three other people who want the same thing. So it's really something that thrives with four people and with our collaborators as well. And moving to Montreal, as many people know, it's culturally a very active scene. I think per capita, we have so much culture and we're so lucky to have theater and dance, visual arts, my goodness, all these museums and all these galleries, the big ones and the small ones that you can just go and, and be inspired by or even choose as collaborators. Like specifically going back to the music scene in Montreal, so many contemporary music groups here, any size, you can find them and they're all doing different things and have their corner of what kind of new music that they want to do. And it's very inspirational to go to each other's shows and try and figure out who's the next composer we want to play. And the other big scene, big underground scene is the music actuelle, the improvisational scene here. There are just some greats that have really established the scene here in Montreal. Joanne Etu, Jean de Rome, uh, René Lucier has become a really good friend and mentor in, in that kind of music. Yves Charruet, uh, Nick Aloya, Laurie Freeman, all these guys, like they've been doing it for so long and they've developed this practice of improvisation. How do they push themselves in improvisation? It's not just playing anything at the moment. 
how are they listening? How are they interacting with each other? And also through the quartet, I got to know the Wandelweiser collective movement uh, associated composers. And really the attitude with that is that there's no hierarchy between composer and performer. We are all equal contributors. It's, it's not composer who's the higher being who is handing down a sheet of music and needs to explain how it needs to be played. I mean, Fondelweiser started off as composer performers playing each other's pieces. And I thought that was so wonderful. The aspect of listening to each other is very present. Uh, listening to each other, but also listening to the environment is very present in that attitude. It's something that I also believe in and have adopted into my music. Talk about one of your pieces. You know, these aren't necessarily in any particular order. There, there's lots of great stuff online to to listen to, and and it's a it's a really remarkable output, actually. But one of the pieces that I've been listening to the last couple of days is Zwischentun. One of the things that's really striking about that, both just to my ears as a listener, even if I didn't know it was yours, but also compared to um, most of the other music that I think of yours that I've heard is just this really, really narrow, wonderfully narrow focus on what the two instruments are doing. At first I thought of it as kind of like a restless stasis. It's like nothing's changing, but everything wants to in a way. And then I kind of came to the conclusion, you know, maybe this is about bees or hummingbirds or something, but it may not have any concrete, you know, meaning like that. But I, w I wonder if you could talk about that piece a little bit, as it, it does stand out a little bit from, from your work, I think. Zwischentene is a violin duo, and I wrote it for me and Ewald Chung. Actually, the context was for a Anne Burroughs Foundation fundraising concert. We used to be involved in a lot of those uh, Christmas time concerts, so there was an opportunity for me to write something for us both. I imagined the two violins actually being quite far apart from each other, either on stage or one violinist in the audience just as far away as possible so that they could still interact musically but the distance is quite a major factor and when i was writing it i was imagining birds actually in different trees perhaps calling to each other and so there is an interaction and there is similar material that they are both playing and yet there's 
a loneliness to it as well because they are so far away from each other and they can barely hear each other because we have practice mutes on so the output the actual sound output is is very small so what you experience is even more far away so with a piece like that how would you have planned that or or is it sort of something that just was spun out from an initial idea it's actually all completely written the measures have dotted lines to it so there's an openness it actually starts with one notated note and in the score, then the other notes are actually just defined by how your fingers naturally fall around that first note. So for different players, it will end up being a different note, but it is that natural layout of the hand of that person. So it's it's very individual and it's not an overtone series of any sort, but it's just how it naturally lies on the fingerboard. That's how you get the microtones, the zishintene of that. We should just clarify what Zishintuna means. Oh, in between the tones. So, yeah. Best way of describing it, I guess. There's a very large degree to which if two different, completely different violinists played it, it would have a different different outcome. A little bit different outcome. I mean, I think it starts with an F and then whatever f- fingers lie around that F. I wrote it so high up in the register. That's why you would get results of different notes because it's so high up, there's a possibility of several microtones that you could hit, depending on how your fingers lay. You were just talking about performing this with Evald, who is a violinist with, with the Edmonton Symphony here in town. That's the the issue of performing your own pieces. Now, you know, all of the classical music I ever performed was other people's music that I was assigned or whatever. I never actually performed anything of my own that was notated. I've done other things, but I guess I'm kind of curious, thinking about your work, makes me think about this and also it's it's come up when i you know in the past when i've thought about some other other people that i've encountered and that is the the idea of performing your own pieces because it seems to me as having never done it that it's potentially a very strange experience but maybe i'm maybe i'm wrong <laughs> but I, I guess i'm wondering like do you at some level detach yourself from the piece you know is there a way that you sort of can say to yourself i am now just the interpreter of this piece or is it just really such a continuum of 
understanding that you don't really think that way? I think when I first started performing my pieces, when I was writing, I was writing for myself. That's how I started off, or asking a couple of friends to play my music, and that's how it really started. So I was always, almost always on this continuum of being composer and then performing it. It's probably one of the most vulnerable places that you can be, because not only are you performing as a performer being received and watched and listened to, but also what you are playing is coming also from you. So it is a very vulnerable place and it takes quite a bit of courage to be able to do that. And I feel that I'm starting to develop that courage and having good feedback is always very nice and it kind of gets that momentum going again uh, when the people that you play with also enjoy playing your piece. But you know, when I compose, I am, as I say, I'm always thinking about the outcome. So always think about how the performer is going to feel when they're playing the piece. How is it going to feel psychologically to get at this point? Is it going to be difficult? Is it going to be peaceful? What kind of body language would they be executing when they're playing that particular passage? And that is just as much part of the music as, as the notes on the page. It brings up another question, because there's almost certainly a break between finishing a composition and performing it. So, and potentially with your busy performing life, there must be sometimes months where you don't even see your composition and then you have to play it. So what I'm curious about is whether anything ever has happened or is it normal when you're interpreting your own pieces for you to sort of suddenly understand something about the piece you didn't quite get when you were composing it. I think if I'm writing for myself and for ensembles that I'm super familiar with, there's less of that happening because I'm so familiar with the rehearsal and the execution process of what is to follow. But for example, I was working on a cello piece a month ago and I was just bringing sketches to a friend to try out and I just needed some feedback from a cellist because I don't play cello. And so as we were workshopping the piece, then new ideas came. They were offering different harmonizations or different ornamentations. And so I do enjoy that process of collaboration of the feedback and how they would feel, uh, how they might contribute to the piece as well. I'd like to ask a little bit about your work habits, <laughs> you know, the tools of the trade and so on. One of the things I've really enjoyed most in the last couple of days getting ready to talk to you is watching the video you made for uh, while you were composing Impressions, your, your Edmonton Symphony piece, because I got to be sitting beside a composer for five minutes and let it, the, the person's letting me look at their sketchbooks and so on, pictures, they're telling me their thinking process. We'll link to that video when we publish the podcast so people can have a look for themselves. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, not specifically that piece, but just generally, what kind of environment you like to be in when you're composing, you know, whether it's the kind of chair you use or, or your pencils or paper. <laughs> Everybody that I know who's a composer has their own set of things that makes them feel good and ready to go. I like a space to listen, often quieter places, because 
I need to be able to think about what's happening and receive it without too much external stimuli at home quietly or at a park somewhere. Those are preferred places. If I need feel the need to walk, then I'll do the park thing. So you can work outside? Yeah, there are different stages of the compositional process where in the conception, I just need to go for a walk or just sit and be on a bench somewhere. Or sometimes I just also go to art galleries, I go to museums. Those are super quiet places, but then there's all this visual art to stimulate ideas. At conception, yeah, that's sometimes what I like to do. And when I was writing impressions, it was during Christmas holidays, and so I also had time to paint. And so when you're painting, your mind is focused on what you're doing in the painting, but it also has room to wander and think about other ideas. In the video, there's magnificent sketchbooks. There's also words. And once yeah. again, there's these, these visual images from the watercolors. So I was wondering whether those watercolor paintings are there, uh, are, are something you created as part of the compositional process, or are they things that you had already made somewhere else? No, they were made for fun. <laughs> I find watercolors actually quite therapeutic in a way because it has taught me to let go. In watercolor, you really can't try and control everything. Otherwise, it won't turn out to be a good piece. It's really about letting the paint and the water and the pigment do its thing. You lay it down, you let it go, and that's what the magic of watercolor is. And so in terms of my own personal life and personal practice, it was a good exercise to learn to let go of, of things that are beyond control or things that you think you need to control, but you actually don't need to. Has that filtered into your composition work? The idea of letting go of things? Yeah, especially in terms of some of my open score pieces, I think I really enjoy that process to see what performers will do with a certain instruction or with a certain situation, as as Antoine Boycher likes to put it. What kind mm -hmm. of situation do we find ourselves in and what are the conditions that will make for beautiful and interesting events? Talking about another one of your pieces, Chemin d'Affaire, one way that it is definitely unique in your output is it's the only purely electronic piece, at least of the ones that you list on your works. And it's also quite recent, um, at least comparatively recent. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you came to write a piece that is a sort of piece of a musique concrète, I suppose. It is. It's very much uh, musique concrète. And this was written for Common Festival. Actually, it was a commission by Kaman Festival, and I wanted to give myself the challenge of writing an electronic piece because I hadn't done it at that point yet. And I also wanted a piece where we didn't have to rehearse for it. You just have to put up a set of speakers and and go with the flow. And I have a personal fascination with trains. I think a lot of people have this fascination. So many different sounds and the idea of locomotion. I remember just before I wrote that piece, we were in Winnipeg for a concert and there there was a train two or three bridges away, but I could hear and the wail of the horn. Unknowingly, I wanted to make a piece of music with trains and an electronic composer tells me, well, yeah, one of the first pieces of music concrete was trains, so you're not really doing anything revolutionary. I knew that, but it was 
Good to know. Contextually, what can I say about trains that I'd love to explore? And so this piece isn't very long. It's only five minutes. So I just played around with some samples that were readily available on the internet for free. So I didn't have to even take my own samples. I was just trying to figure out how to play around with sound in, in the digital sense and not on pencil and paper, which I really enjoy doing. Like I find it quite a challenge to write electronic pieces because it's less tangible. There are other things that you can play around with, like reversing or EQing out certain registers and frequencies. And I'm only starting to get into it. Uh, my next piece that I'm working on right now is actually my second electroacoustic piece. It's going to be about whales and the Saint Laurent, and it's going to be part of a performance installation in June. Oh, whereabouts will that be? It's up in Sétil, and it will be live streamed to several museums around Quebec. So is that a collaboration of some kind? You say it's an installation, which implies some visuals as well. Yes, so uh, Alain Lefort is the instigator of this project. His mentor, Renaud Savay, dreamed of this installation in the 80s and hadn't found any way to make it happen. Because what it is, is there are three towers with mirrors on them. And at the dawn of June solstice, the sun would hit these three mirrors consecutively and the last mirror was supposed to trigger a recording of whale songs underneath the water. Now with the remake of this project, they finally found funding to do it. We can't ecologically play whale songs in the water because it will confuse the animals. So as an alternative, Alain has commissioned me to write a piece, uh, about a 30 minute piece to accompany the performance. So right when dawn will come up on June 21st, then uh, that's when my piece will be played. Well, that sounds very cool. So is, are people going to be able to access that if they're not involved in the museums or like, are they going to be free online somehow? I hope that we can make it available online after. It probably will be. There's also a, an associated podcast and there will be a documentary about this whole process. So uh, many levels to this big project. And I think I'll at least make an excerpt available to listeners afterwards. That sounds great. Very interesting project.
just touching back again on the on the quartet and not so much talking about the quartet itself but the whole issue of moving to Montreal and leaving here uh, which was your hometown in Edmonton and also after I don't know how many years of playing with the Edmonton Symphony it was a little bit on and off but I think altogether it was three and a half seasons or so that's a long time with the Edmonton Symphony because there's always a lot a lot of music in every season so it's true yeah I can't remember if it's Three and a half or four and a half, but yeah, thereabouts. You know, it must have been a tremendous change to move to Montreal. And maybe you've already alluded to this, actually, but if you could name, you know, one or two things of how you as a creative, you know, have responded to what is no longer your new life in Montreal over the last 10 years or so since you've been there. Well, it's not quite that, but... It's almost been that, yeah. (laughs) If at all, how do you feel you've changed as a creative since you moved there? Our work is very nomadic and very diverse, and I think that's really fed my artistic side and my writing side. We go on tours at least four or five times a year, so just to even be in a different place and to be stimulated by new environments, new ways of doing things, meeting other artists that do things differently, or maybe do things similarly, but uh, and and you have some some common ground. I've also had you know the chance to have some informal composer mentors along the way, such as uh, Martin Arnold, Christopher Butterfield, Anton Boycher, as I mentioned. If I have any open score ideas, I always run them by him. Linda Smith, Michael Ersterle, trusted colleagues of the quartet that also have become my own personal friends. I can bounce ideas off them and I can trust their opinion and I've been really lucky that way. So it's a very rich environment in general then, both in Montreal and on tour. And actually, you know, thinking about, you know, going on the tours, obviously, you know, the quartet encounters and works with some really, really major figures in the contemporary music world, but there's a lot of focus in your activities on on working with emerging composers as well. And you've been composing for long enough now that, you know, you are perhaps able to see uh, newer generations of people, and they're not necessarily people that are younger, but just people who are emerging into the world of composing, all of which is to ask, are you sensing when you go around the world to different places and work with these younger artists or emerging artists that there's anything resembling trends that may not be trends in the way that they're composing but just maybe even the way they're thinking or what how they understand composition or indeed how they understand working with professional musicians of your stature in terms of working with professional musicians i think there's still a lot of work to be done for young composers to get those opportunities there's so many people wanting to write music but they often write it in a vacuum and they write it in their computer software with their midi that that will play it back to them and so to work with real life performers really is another way to make music and you really don't know how it's really going to sound until you work with people or work with performers who might suggest other things that might make that piece better. So our mission as a quartet is still the same that way to really provide composers who have not had the chance to work with professional ensembles to get that chance. Because that effect can really snowball rather quickly uh, as a young composer or emerging composer if you don't get those opportunities 
before age 35 or whatever it is, um, then there's a certain stigma in the industry, unfortunately, that you aren't successful, but maybe you just haven't had the right opportunities. And for example, I don't have very many large ensemble pieces because as a performer, I'm so busy, I don't have the time to really reach out or, or to do those workshops with, with larger ensembles. So it's not that I don't want to, it's just the opportunities sometimes aren't there. In terms of trends, for example, you know, in Germany, it's kind of a Germany-centric kind of way of doing things. And also depending on the festivals, so places like Darmstadt or also in Austria, there are certain festivals where young composers would get accepted or Lucerne Festival, certain kinds of musics will get presented on those huge platforms. So I think those trends are, and traditions are always there. And then there are those other opportunities on the periphery. For example, Netherlands is a big hotpot of young composers because they like to study at The Hague, they like to study at Amsterdam Conservatory, and there's a bit more openness to how music can be made. So a lot more cross-genre mix with electronics, uh, theatrics, uh, theater slash music. So I think that's rather interesting that even though we're such a globalized society, there's still certain trends depending on who is in your surroundings and how you're influenced by who you interact with. And I also find that with the availability of technology at a very reasonable price, almost anyone can make music and almost anyone can get a microphone and start recording uh, and make their own sounds. We can all make our own videos with our camera phones, you know, things like that. And so I think there's also a trend towards more DIY type of multimedia performance art with the next generation.
tying your compositional work in with Watsini again, you've written a couple pieces for the quartet, and the most recent was a piece called Dunold. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that piece in particular and about the experience of composing it, prepping it, and working with a group that is basically a musical family for you already. So maybe talk a little bit about the piece itself and then and then a little bit about the experience of bringing it to the group. Yes, this piece is quite meaningful to me in many ways. It was a commission by Arta Musica, which is associated with Salbougi and the Museum of Fine Arts in Montreal. Often with their main expositions, they will commission a musical piece that year that will be related to that exposition. So that year it was by Jean-Paul Riopel. I was given a catalog of all the works that were being displayed in that exposition, and I was to take one as inspiration for my piece. The piece that I chose, I almost cheated because it's a, a double-sided piece. He painted it on a an old door, and one side of it is a white goose, and the other side of it is pheasants that are caught in a net. This particular piece is so colorful. There's glitter, there's spray paint. It really spoke to me in terms of how lively it was. And it also inspired, again, my love for watching bird migrations. The piece is really about geese and how they work together to migrate. When I was writing this piece, it was May 2020, and we were in the midst of what we know we were in. And so I really felt I needed to write something that was about joy, that was about solidarity, that was about nature. And so actually this piece came rather quickly. I had I had time to write like most composers did at that point. It was really a pleasure to write for the quartet because at that time we were starting to come together to rehearse again. And so this piece is really about working together as a quartet to get through the piece. And so there are lots of imagery of batting wings, of geese calling to each other to either take off or to land. There are moments of rest and repose when the geese are just resting from, from their journey really about solidarity. Yeah. So is it, so you said there's images, are you saying there's there's graphics in the score? There are like alternating notes that kind of sound like trills, like, yeah, Im- yeah, imagery like that. Cause one, the goose in front has their wings up, often the goose behind them will have the wings down in order to generate the most uh, aerodynamic way of getting somewhere. Otherwise they're just wasting their energy. One player will have an upper note, then a lower note, upper note, then lower note, but then the other player will have the opposite. That makes sense. I understand that now. That's amazing, something that I never knew. You may know there's some birds that are staying over winter here that didn't used to, but the geese haven't shown up yet, but we'll know. Well, I haven't seen any yet either, uh, but it's always, I, I love seeing geese fly like in their formations. And there was one point in... 2021 when we were touring the piece in Quebec in October and in between concerts we would see them flying overhead as we were driving to the next place and it was it was just amazing. Another interesting fact about geese is I mean they mate for life and also 
that uh, if there's a goose that's either injured or sick along the journey, there will be at least one or two other geese that will stay with them to make sure they're okay, or that if if that goose dies, then then they will take off. But there really is a solidarity about their behavior. It's always interesting to look through a list of works and, you, you know, you have this really great website with all sorts of information and, and your works are listed very clearly. One thing that is really noticeable is recently a lot of your works, you know, they have terms in the description like open duration for any instruments or for at least two instruments, you know, and things like that. So there's a kind of um, a sense of open parameters that are not necessarily in your control. Does it come from something specific or is it something that you've crossed paths with and started to work incorporate? And also what kinds of interesting things are you finding from working that way now? So it really comes from the open improv genre of music actuelle here, but also mostly from Vondelweiser. There are so many pieces that Vondelweiser composers have written that are, say, for any two or three instruments. Also, Christian Wolf does that quite often, actually. Pieces that can be really modulable and adapted to the situation. So you could find your collaborators and meet them and say, okay, let's let's try this piece out. And so it's coming from those inspirations of 
how music could sound differently if you have different performers doing them, different instrumentations, and also different performance contexts for open duration is so that people aren't fixed to a certain duration. If they want to play that piece for the whole concert, they could. If they wanted to use five to ten minutes um, portion, they could also use that. So it makes it a little bit more flexible in terms of programming as well. That's a practical side to it. And often these scores are open form, actually, so that that can happen. There's a lot of listening to one another. There will be maybe one task at hand, and you just do it for as long as you like. So maybe we could talk a little bit about a very clear example of that, which is a piece called Euphoria, Mm -hmm. which, if I recall, exists in a couple of different formats. It's supposed to. I haven't released any of the other formats. The premiere still exists. So it was in the context of Hatch program that Continuum in Toronto puts on. That particular year, they were still doing the online version. So the chosen composers had to find a way to write a piece where the players would not ever interact with each other which I thought was a little bit unfortunate because then the players were really performing all of the pieces kind of in their own corner and recording them. It was it was a little bit sad. So I, as a performer, was very sympathetic to them and I wanted to find a way that they could make music uh, and also have some agency in what the piece would sound like. And there was also a wide range of experience in terms of improvisation amongst these players. There was one person who had a lot of folk fiddling experience, so she's used to ornamenting things or repeating and looping and things like that, and other people had maybe a little less experience. So how could I write a piece where everyone could feel like they were contributing as they like and as they were comfortable? The structure of the piece is that there were just some cells and modules they could either loop or ornament or just be inspired by and create something else if they felt like it. And that would just go on for, I think this version was 15 minutes. That's what I had them do. And when they were recording the piece, then I had them each record maybe three or four versions and they all got overlapped. And that is the result of Euphoria. Thank you. 
When I was watching the video, I was admittedly first time I was watching on an iPad, so I didn't quite realize that that was actually like the same people in different parts of the screen. So, so it's all multitracks because I, I kind of wondered whether they were actually listening to each other. If you were thinking about that piece, has it been performed again since then? No. It's probably an obvious question, but would it be substantially different if people did it in person? Oh my goodness, so different. They would actually react to one another. I think also what was unfortunate about the online circumstances, you can only produce a stereo image. So in terms of spatially, I didn't know if it would work, but it some things worked. And just spatially, I would have made different choices in terms of the editing, but there's only so much you can do in a, in a two-dimensional space. So I think if one would see it live, you could distinguish more the individual voices just because we can visually see and also by our ears distinguish um, different places. I would even put performers around the audience if, if it was performed live. It'd be kind of fun. Yeah, it'd be interesting to hear that. Your, your opinion matters more than mine, but I, I actually think it's really successful. And Okay. <laughs> as somebody kind of in the position that Hatch was in, I guess, of how can we overcome this situation and, you know, have something meaningful, I think it's a great solution to what was necessary. I don't think I have any fond memories of the pandemic, but I think one of the brightening things was, in fact, those solutions. I'd really like to see some discussion about that now, you know, now that those solutions are not necessarily required. Some of the things that came out of it, that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And should we ever happen to be in that position again? I hope not. There's a place to go where we can commission new pieces, we can get them performed, we can kind of try try things. I hope so. I, I, I think it's interesting to talk about anyway. Oh, absolutely. And as we were talking about limitations for composers, that was certainly a very interesting limitation. And I mean, I had hoped it would be a live edition of the festival, but just in, in the last weeks, they just couldn't promise that. So I think it was a good challenge for me. And I had two mentors with different opinions about what I did. And so it was good to have sort of that feedback or or being challenged about my ideas and how firm I needed to be to to follow through with what in the end was, was the piece that you heard. Well, contrary opinions from two people probably means you did the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> Your instincts are, are almost certainly always going to be correct, I would say. So... Correct for me. I mean, and anyone else can receive it the way they receive it, as we say, no no pretense. <laughs> it's, it's one of the ways in which composers are all powerful, because you can just resist all of the things other people say and say, no, I know what I did.
Just to finish off, let's take a really sharp turn away from restrictions like like that. You may not have ever thought about this. You may have, but if there's there's sort of a, a kind of dream ideal piece that you would like to write at some point. So if somebody said you had unlimited resources and facilities, the kind of piece that you would dream of doing that could be completely unrealistic or it could be something that's not that unrealistic. Maybe not my ultimate dream piece because I've never thought about that, but I would really like to dabble more into orchestral and symphonic writing. I had such a great pleasure to write impressions, especially since it was my hometown and for friends that I knew who were playing in in the symphony and for Alex who had asked me uh, in particular to write the piece. It was a very meaningful piece to write and it was also a very quick commission so I had to write the piece very quickly and I would love the opportunity to have more time to think about an orchestral piece and, and to work on that. I was there at that show. There was a lot of music on that concert, but your piece was definitely a standout for all of us. I think we really enjoyed that. Yeah, so so maybe maybe an orchestra piece. Have you got anything kind of in the works just at the moment that's... Well, there's the whale, electronic whale piece, whale sounds. What about instrumental pieces? I am working on this solo cello piece that uh, is commissioned by... Emma Schmiedek. She is a graduate student at the University of Toronto. She's a cello player and she's doing her doctorate on female composers. And so her second recital is almost all living female composers and I'll be one of them. The next bigger project will be with folk musicians from Norway. Uh, Sarah Jane Summers on fiddle and Hardinger fiddle and Johanny Suvola on guitar and possibly electric guitar as well. Uh, we had worked with Sarah Jane in different contexts and now we want to do full-length show together and they are also arrangers and composers in their own right so we're gonna share the program and do kind of a mishmash of folk and contemporary music. And that's actually something that I'm super excited about and actually is going to be a huge part of my next output as a composer performer because I have fallen in love with with folk music and, and, and traditional music, especially Scottish, Irish, Quebecois, and also the Scandinavian, like Norwegian and Swedish, Finnish contemporary traditions of folk music and arranging and finding new sounds. And I think both have a lot to offer each other and it will be very interesting to see what this collaboration will turn out to be, what kind of music we end up with. That sounds really exciting. Look forward to hearing some of the results of that. Thank you so much, Alyssa. Uh, it's great to talk with you and um, I'll look forward to next time you're in town, we can, we can get together and have a chat. It would be nice to see you and also to see you perform perhaps. Thanks for having me.
That brings us to the end of this edition of The No Normal. New Music Edmonton is a not-for-profit organization, generously supported by the Canada Council for the Arts, the Alberta Foundation for the Arts, Canadian Heritage, SOCAN Foundation, Alberta Gaming, Liquor and Cannabis, CJSR Radio, and the City of Edmonton. A sincere thank you to all our supporters and sponsors, along with our members, volunteers, and NME staff and board members who keep it all together and happening for New Music Edmonton, to the artists whose work is the reason we come together, and of course, thank you for joining us. Visit newmusicedmonton.ca for programming updates and for our streaming archive of on-demand digital works presented in this series. The No Normal Podcast was created by Caitlin Sean Richards and Ian Crutchley for New Music Edmonton. I'm Oscar Tsitbatov.